Well, good morning, everyone. I was uh, so excited to see Ghazi came uh, this morning. He's there. Stand up and wave to everybody, Ghazi. Yeah. What an what a amazing contrast that we saw this week um, in the birth of little Luca um, and his parents fighting with, uh, with all that they have for his life. Um, and then in the broader society, um, discarding and mistreating life. Um, I am so encouraged to know him and uh, to know Bethany. And uh, we can praise God that every life is valuable and that um, God treasures every life. And we pray for uh, little Luca and his healing. In fact, let's do that now as we uh, pray before the sermon. Bow with me, please. Father in heaven, I, I come before you this morning just so thankful um, for bringing little Luca into the world um, this week. Lord Jesus, thank you so much, God, for the testimony of Ghazi and Bethany and their faith in you and their confidence in you to provide and to care and to heal. And Lord Jesus, we uh, come alongside them with similar confidence and we pray, God, for healing and for, um, and for recovery for little Luca. We pray, Father, that that would come quickly so that Bethany and Ghazi could hold him. We pray, Lord Jesus, that it would come quickly so that um, uh, Bethany could nurse him. Father, we, uh, all these things that so many um, uh, mothers take for granted, she's unable to do right now. And our hearts go out to her and Ghazi um, at the thought of not being able to hold him just yet. Um, and having to be so careful. But Lord, we trust You with this timing and we trust You uh, with this little one's life. And we pray for deliverance and protection and healing. We pray this in Your Son's name. And Father, we also pray uh, for us this morning as we delve into Your Word in a passage of Scripture that is somewhat contentious and draws a lot of attacks from people um, outside of your people, um, outside of the church, who seek to attack the Bible and belittle the Bible and um, relegate the Bible to um, obscurity and unimportance because of what it teaches on these verses that we're discussing today. Lord Jesus, I pray that all of us would leave here encouraged by what your word says, not in any way embarrassed or um, or, or blushing because of what Your Word says. But Father, more and more convinced that when we stand on Your Word, we stand on a very sure footing. And Lord Jesus, bless the preaching of Your Word. Lord, would You uh, do a, a transformative work in our hearts and minds as we consider what it is that Your Word has to say to us today? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, the title in your bulletin was, is The Master's Coming. And when I gave that title to Barb, I, I had forgotten that I had already assigned a, a, a title to this passage. And as, after studying it and reading through it, I realized, oh, you know, it's kind of got two titles. So, I fixed it for you up on the screen. So, it's The Master's Coming, also known as The Glorious Death of Sin, Part 4B, The New Man's New Work. So, I'm like a good Puritan, right, who loves long titles. So, but we're just covering verses 
22 of chapter 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4 this morning. And we'll read that together in just a moment, and I'm going to read it in three separate ways when we get there. Um, so today, the path forward is essentially, I, wanna, I want to um, discuss the, uh, in light of this passage, discuss the institution of slavery, and slavery in history, slavery in the Old Testament, slavery in the New Testament, appropriate application of these passages today. Um, and I want to um, uh, get at, at the very end, the core of the main passage that is often missed in the weeds of this contentious issue of slavery, masters and their slaves in antiquity, and in, not our, and in our own uh, not-too-distant past here in our own country. When I was a boy growing up in this state, in this country, I learned of Roe versus Wade. And I was taught that it was a travesty of justice that was imposed upon the whole country by a radical Supreme Court, a bench that ruled seven to two in favor of Jane Roe. And their decision was based on the discovery of an implied right to privacy in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The ramifications of that decision in, in, in 1973 were immediate. It nullified state laws against abortion, and it allowed the practice of abortion at any time and for any reason. How dare the few members of an elite judicial institution impose their will upon the entire citizenry of a country? And that's exactly what happened in 1973. And though I was born after uh, Roe versus Wade, I was happy to have lived to see the demise and overturning of that judicial travesty in, in, in 2022 with the Dobbs decision of the current Supreme Court. That pushed the issue of abortion back to the states to decide in each instance if the practice would be upheld as legal. But our culture now is slidden very much further down the slippery slope of moral relativism to the point that much of what I experienced as a reality growing up has literally been reversed. Agreed upon norms of right and wrong are virtually opposite what they were when I was young in many categories. And I'm only 47. I can't imagine what it must feel like to those of you who are older. In just a few decades past, if the issue of abortion had been turned back over to the states, I would venture to say that it would have been outlawed by the citizenry in overwhelming majorities in a state-by-state -state basis. And the reason I say that, part of the reason I say that is, is, is think of this, um, but it couldn't happen because the radical judiciary prevented it. Now the way has been cleared by the judiciary. And the reason I say that just a few short decades ago it would have been outlawed, just think back as recently as 2008. In the state of California, when the issue of same-sex marriage was first put on the ballot, again, it was back in 2008, Proposition 8. Do you guys remember this? It, it, it passed in California. The citizenry of California refused the redefinition of marriage to include same-sex couples. 
They refused that as recently as 2008. We can't even fathom that now. We've gone so far since just a few short years ago. That was California. Now, in every state that has presented their citizens with a decision on the issue of abortion, every state has elected to expand and enshrine abortion as a right in their constitutions. So what began as a judiciary imposing their minority view upon the citizenry has become the citizenry imposing their will upon the judiciary via the constitutional amendment process of various states. Who would have ever thought that the roles would be so reversed as they are now? Unthinkable. I I pray God have mercy. And I consider that a citizenry that votes to allow the murder of the most helpless and innocent of its citizens does not deserve the the right to vote at all when you think about it. What will a citizenry capable of this evil elect to do next? We can only imagine. Will they rule that self-defense is unconstitutional? Will they decide that the elderly are not economically worth increased medical expenses? Will they decide that, that pedophilia is a constitutional right? And I think about all of this and, and I fear that the the freedoms that we've had in this country to decide our own fate and to choose our own governance and to, to chart our own course that we have enjoyed in, these, in this country for so many generations that it will not last much longer under the supervision of a just God. We cannot be trusted with this responsibility to chart our own course if we wield it so haphazardly as to elect to make it legal to murder the weakest among us. A citizenry that has a moral compass as degraded as ours is capable of unspeakable evil. And we're quick to judge the past. In a not so roundabout way, this kind of brings me to the text before us today. Here in Colossians where Paul addresses slaves and their masters. And you think about it, as divided as we are as citizens of Ohio on the issue of abortion in our day, we're not so divided on this issue of slavery, are we? Slavery is pretty much universally condemned, and it's decried as a grievous evil in our nation's past. We're shocked that such an evil was permitted and tolerated by our forebears. We're quick to get on our soapboxes, in judgment over them for participating in that institution or not speaking out against it when they had the opportunity. Their silence was consent. We scream as we point our fingers into the past. And then an election day like Tuesday happens. And what becomes crystal clear is that this generation has no moral high ground from which to condemn their ancestors. In Luke 11... 29 to 32, Jesus said the following to his audience. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, except the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, repeated, or they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. These words shocked Jesus' Jewish audience to hear him tell them that a godless Gentile people and nation would stand in judgment over God's chosen people. How could those people exceed our righteousness? They thought. Well, permit me here to similarly shock you using Jesus' words as a pattern for my own. I'm not putting these words into Jesus' mouth. These words are my own. But I ask you, what if at the judgment we see men from the Confederacy or we see men from the antebellum period of the American South rise up with the people of our generation and condemn us because we tolerated and remained silent in the face of a far greater evil in our midst than they ever faced? And the point I'm trying to make in, in using that analogy is not to excuse the South or America's version of chattel slavery in the past. It's to implore this generation to stop excusing yourself and doing nothing and not speaking out against this and drawing attention to the evil that is abortion in our day. So, in the text, it's time to move on from abortion, though. But there's a point to all of this. Our modern discomfort with the concept of slavery and the revulsion at it is actually pretty unique in human history, believe it or not. Slavery as an institution existed in literally every culture and in every period of recorded history. And it was probably an unrecorded history, too, but we don't know because there's no recording. So... It has literally always been here and has literally been everywhere. Sadly, it even exists today. We don't, we're, we're hesitant to admit that. In many foreign lands, it exists even in our own country in secretive, very hidden ways in the arena of sexual exploitation and human sex trafficking. This phenomenon of, of sex slavery is actually rapidly increasing in our day. But our modern sense that slavery in any form is inherently immoral can make passages of Scripture like ours today in Colossians very uncomfortable for us as Christians. Because it feels like it puts us into the position of having to defend or make excuses for the Bible on this issue. But I tell you, there's no reason for us to be embarrassed by what the Bible says on this subject when we understand what it says and what it teaches clearly. So let's look at it. Let's look at the issue of slavery in the Bible. And this will have to be kind of quick, given that we need to get to our specific text at some point today too. Um, but I'll just start by stating, the Bible in no place outright condemns the institution of slavery. Slavery was in the Old Testament. Slavery was in the New Testament. The Old Testament is written in cultures and in times when the practice of slavery was already widespread. Slavery is never, hear this, slavery is never presented as a desirable or an optimal institution in the Bible. 
In fact, the laws set forth in the Old Testament regulated the practice of slavery that already existed and made provision for the care, the proper care of slaves. Dr. John Bergsma recently sat down for an interview with uh, Pints with Equinus, the Pints with Equinus um, podcast. And incidentally, you guys may have seen already, just before I came up to preach, I sent everyone an email that provides a list of videos and a, and a list of quotes and their footnotes that were very helpful to me in informing my study of this passage, okay? So if you get a chance later on in the week, please not during the sermon. Don't watch the YouTube videos during the sermon. Wait till after the sermon to watch those. But they're all very interesting. One of them is Dr. John Bergsma. And he sat down with this podcast. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Jubilee Laws in the Old Testament. And what he found was that under Moses... True slavery was outlawed for Israelites. Under the law of Leviticus 25, an Israelite could indenture a fellow Israelite if they owed them money, but they could not be treated like slaves. The indentured servant maintained all of his civil rights as they were recognized at the time. And the requirement to work for the other was temporary, only until the year of Jubilee at maximum or until the debt was repaid at minimum. Other non-Israelite, he, he makes this point, other non-Israelite slave laws were written in Deuteronomy 15 and in Exodus 21. And according to Bergsma, these passages concern other non-Israelite peoples that were still considered Hebrews. I'm not sure I agree with him on this point exactly, but he says that they were considered Hebrews as coming from the line of the patriarch Eber through Abraham. Thus, they were still Hebrews. So Edomites, Ishmaelites, other Semitic peoples who settled in a ring around Israel. But even in these instances of allowable slavery, um, they could only be held as slaves for six years at the most, and they must be released on the Sabbath year. Their emancipation was required, and it was mandatory, unless the slave of their own free will decided that they wanted to remain in servitude to their master. In cases like this, there was a process that God developed that was put in place that the slave and the master would follow to extend that that, that servitude for life. So, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around the concept of some people wanting to maintain their enslavement or their servitude to a master in this way for life. But we need to come to understand that we have things in modern times much, much easier than most in human history have ever had it. We get triggered in our culture by microaggressions, and we have a hard time dealing with them. In the ancient world that we read about in the Bible, people lived lives that, were, that, that, that experienced aggression and violence and hardship in the macro on a daily basis. Not just microaggressions. Life was hard and brutal in ancient times. So a slave could very well have been thankful for the protection and the security that a good master, a landowner, a wealthy landowner could provide to them. Day laborers were often treated worse than slaves. Most people had very little. Some had literally nothing in life and no family and no property to fall back on for a safety net. So to be able to find a person who would provide shelter and provide sustenance in exchange for labor was a good deal for a whole lot of people. We can't comprehend that today because we have so many entrenched safety nets in our society. Back then, it was very different. Do some research on this. 
we're often slow in acknowledging um, that we do something at least similar also in our day when we enter into agreements with our employers. They don't own us and they don't control us to the degree that most masters did their slaves in the ancient world. Yet nonetheless, we still sign over at least a portion of our lives to our employers, don't we? They give us provision, we give them labor, we give them work. And if you work a typical eight-hour shift each day, many of you work much more than that, you're giving up roughly a third of your life to your employer. Half of your waking life, if you get a good eight-hour sleep each night. Half of your waking life is given to your employer in servitude. And there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with this. In a sense, that portion of your life belongs to another. And if you like your job, that's a bonus. But there's a lot of people who don't like their jobs. It's called work for a reason, right? So, so related to, I think I might be out of place here. No, no, I'm in place here. So, related to the slaver there, here, here's what the, the Bible never permits related to slavery. It never permits kidnapping. It never permits torture. It never permits neglect or, or shackling or mistreatment of any kind. The Bible never advocates for that. These are, the, are things that slavery often involved in many places in the ancient world. Um, and if Israel, when they became a society and, and a nation of their own in ancient times, if they had followed the laws of God as handed down through Moses, their practice of slave treatment would have made them a desirable model, almost a utopian legend to the societies around them. Our nation's own history of slavery sadly included all of these negative aspects that I just mentioned. The entire market for slavery in America was created by the brutal and tragic act of kidnapping Africans, followed by the transport of those human beings bound in chains and shackled in cargo ships and crossed the huge Atlantic Ocean. Many of them died in transit. Mistreatment of people like exhibited in the slave trade that America and many other nations engaged in was never something that the Bible would have condoned. Slavery in the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus featured many of the negatives um, related to mistreatment that we saw in our own American history, with the exception of the, the racist core that was in our own history. In most cases, that defined the slavery of the South. Not in every case, but in most all cases, it it defined the slavery of the South. In the Roman Empire, during Paul's day and during Jesus' day, anyone could be a slave. Anyone could own slaves. It wasn't based on ethnicity. The Greco-Roman world actually began to understand the advantage of treating slaves well for pragmatic purposes. Additionally, there were, there, there were social norms that existed that would act as deterrents to otherwise cruel masters, people who had, had a tendency toward cruelty, because they wouldn't want... Uh, to have been viewed negatively in that community as one who mistreats their slaves or who neglects their slaves in aging years. So it's no surprise that given the world in which the New Testament, the book of Colossians, where we're at, was written, that we see examples of slavery in the churches, even in the churches. In Ephesians 6, a parallel passage to our Colossian passage, Paul urges slaves to obey uh, their masters, and for the masters to give up threatening their slaves. 
Both slaves and slave owners were in churches and were members in good standing. And it may shock you to realize that when you get to heaven, you will see people who used to be slave owners there alongside of you. Believe it or not, it's crazy to think about, right? Based on our modern day ethic related to that. In the ancient world, the institution of slavery was no more shocking and every bit as common as our own experience of the employer-employee dynamic. Does that make sense? Neither the Old or New Testament treats the ownership of slaves as inherently sinful. That's another shocking thing for people to hear. So as we get to Colossians, we see this very thing. Slavery in Colossae. In fact, this very letter, this is very interesting. If you remember back to when I first started Colossians, I did a little thing. It's like a historical drama that I wrote called Important Epaphras. If you get a chance, go back and listen to it. Um, I'm sort of biased in favor of that. Um, This very letter to the Colossian church was delivered by Paul's associate, Tychicus. Now, accompanying this man, Tychicus, and accompanying this letter that he was delivering, this letter to the Colossians, to that church, was a Christian slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus carried with him, Antichicus, another letter. And that letter was addressed to a specific member in the Colossian church, a man named Philemon. And you can read that letter too in your New Testament, the letter of Philemon. Philemon was the owner of Onesimus who accompanied Tychicus. And hear this, this may shock you also. Paul never accuses Philemon of wrongdoing or sin. He never even directly commands or requests that Philemon free Onesimus. There's a little hint there that he would like for him to free him, but you kind of have to read that into the text. Philemon and Onesimus had apparently entered into a legal agreement of a master-slave relationship, and there was nothing sinful about it that Paul had to rebuke. In fact, the only implied rebuke is to the slave, Onesimus, who he had apparently succeeded in running away from the relationship and wronged Philemon in some way, some way possibly stealing something from him, from him. I know, I know, kids, this is blowing your minds right now. So you should keep coming on Wednesday nights for more of this type of blown away content. You would... Uh, The Bible is a mind-blowing book. It's amazing. So now let's read the text, okay? And I told you ahead of time, I want to read the text three times, but I'm going to make some little changes when I read it each time, okay? First, I'm just going to read it straight from the New American Standard Bible. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven." So this time I want to read it, and I want to replace all appearances of a specific Greek word with the word Lord, okay? Because the word for Lord and Master in the Greek is the word Kyrios in the Greek, okay? So every time that that appears, and I'm going to just replace it with the word Lord. Slaves in all things obey those 
who are your lords on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Lords, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a Lord in heaven. This time, the third time, I'm going to replace all appearances of kurios with the word master, okay? Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the master. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the master, rather than for men, knowing that from the master you will receive the reward reward of the inheritance. It is the master Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So, I did that for a reason, just so you can see that there's a bit of a play on words that Paul is employing here in the original language that we don't often capture in the English. But these instructions for slaves come in the context of the new man and his victory over sin and the flesh. And it's in this context of the imagery of of, of taking off the old sinful garments that fit well on the old man and putting on the new garments of righteousness that are fitting for the new life that Christ has brought about. It's in this context that, that Paul had already discussed the family relational ramifications of this transformed life. And so he's moving on to instructions for slaves and their masters. And it's fitting because it seems he's discussing the whole household here. And that's true because in, in that era, the whole household often included slaves, household slaves and servants that were often treated as members of the extended family. So verse 2, Paul tells them, obey your masters in all things. And this, this verbiage echoes the instructions that he gives to children in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, right? Slaves, obey your masters in all things. But he uses this word on earth or earthly. In the earthly sense, we all have things that we must bear and crosses that we have to carry that may plague us and that may torment us the entirety of our lives. Some of the slaves in Paul's audience could have been members of the Colossian church apart from their masters. They may have had non-believing masters. If this were the case, then it is likely that their treatment was not very kind. Paul, in using the word earthly, was contrasting what he had said at the beginning of this section, back in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, where he said, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, not on the earthly. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So the slaves in Colossae, their earthly trial was temporary. Their earthly master was not their greater master. 
Their greater master was in heaven. And he would one day arrive and he would relieve their burden in an ultimate sense. Job 14.1 says this, that man is born, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Paul, in using this word earthly, was reminding them subtly of what mattered most. It's not the earthly. It's the heavenly. Set your mind on the things above. Pursue the things above, not the things of the earth. Paul goes on and he says to obey your masters, not with external service as those who please men. Slaves, just like employees today, especially if they didn't respect and like uh, their masters, were apt to work hard when the master or the boss was watching them. But with, when their attention was elsewhere, uh, they would slack off. Go figure, human nature, right? None of you have ever done that. Paul wasn't saying that this is, is right. He was saying that this isn't right, I should say. You could envision a person working in a field or in a house some, in some capacity, and they start to loaf when the boss went away. But they keep their tools really close by so that if the boss starts to come back, they can pick them up and act like they've been busy the whole time, right? Homeschool moms, have you ever walked into the area where your kids are on the computers and they're supposed to be doing schoolwork? And you see on their screen and they quickly switch to another screen to prove that they've been working all along when really they've been watching YouTube videos. I think you've probably seen that. Many of you might have done that. I, I've done that before, okay? Paul is saying, rather than be this way, he tells them they need to have a better work ethic. They need an approach that is more fitting for their new identity in Christ. They should be working with sincerity of heart, he says. And I found this very interesting, actually amazing, this past week as I was preparing this. Eddie's sermon last week, um, I, I... I insert this here incidentally, but it was not coincidental. It was just incidentally, I'm putting it here. Eddie's sermon last week focused partially on the same word in Matthew 6 that Paul uses here to refer to sincerity of heart. In that Matthew 6 passage, the word used was haplos, um, and it referred to a singleness of focus, and it referred to the eyes, right? If the eye is bad, if the eye is good, right? If the eye is healthy. That word for healthy and good is actually haplos in the Greek. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. That word describing the eye is healthy. It's that Greek word, haplos. And Eddie went on to point out the connection of this word in the passage to the verse that follows in Matthew 6. And that verse in Matthew 6 that follows is, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Right? Et cetera, et cetera. I don't have that written in my notes. It's not fully memorized. My bad. So, so not coincidentally, but without planning it, on my part or Eddie's part, in our passage today, Paul uses that same root word in verse 22, haplotes, sincerity, to describe the proper single-hearted devotion to Jesus that should motivate slaves. Again, I say this all the time, I'm amazed at God's timing. And I wonder, could it be that the Lord wants us to pause and ponder whether or not we are singularly and sincerely devoted to Him? Or do we have divided loyalties? Living in the service of some earthly master rather than wholeheartedly devoting ourselves to our master in heaven. Just a thought. Paul concludes verse 22 with fearing the Lord. 
So this new sincerity of heart is not nearly as concerned with the perception of the earthly master as it is concerned with showing honor and reverence to the Lord Jesus. Does our work display that we have reverence for the Lord? That we fear the Lord? And that we know we will answer to Him? Verse 23 as we move on. Whatever you do, it says. Now this is a repetition of the same principle of back in verse 17 of chapter 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever you do, Paul says in this verse, he says, do your work heartily. In other words, do it from the soul, putting your all into it, because it's for the Lord, caring about the good name and the reputation of Jesus, who is your ultimate master, caring about that more than you care about your own reputation, more than you care about the the reputation of your employer, though that's not a total unconcern. You're primarily concerned with the reputation of the Lord. You're working for Him rather than for men. Again, no man can serve two masters. Paul's point here is consistent with Jesus's that Eddie brought to us last week back in Matthew 6 regarding serving God and serving money. You can't serve both. So in serving your earthly master, you're to view it as ultimately faithfully serving your heavenly master who loved you and saved you from sin and death. In verses 24 and 25, Paul gives us two, two motivations for why slaves, servants, ought to obey and be faithful. The first is this in verse 24. Let me just read that real quick. Verse 24, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. From the Lord Jesus they will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, this is a line that we may be, may be apt to just quickly read and move along without really thinking through the implications of what Paul just said and to whom he said it to. Remember, he's talking to slaves. Slaves aren't family. Slaves don't get an inheritance. Many of, this, many of you in this room will possibly receive an inheritance someday. Many of you in this room probably have received an inheritance already from family members that have passed away. Some of you may have had a big inheritance from them. Some of you look into the future and you foresee that yourself someday you're going to receive an inheritance. The ownership of some family member who passes away before you, after they die, will transfer their property to you. A slave had no hope of any such thing. Think back to Abraham's slave, Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham mentioned him in his appeal to God for a son. Abraham told God that if you don't eventually provide a son to me through Sarah, that my estate is going to end up passing to my slave, Eleazar. Once Abraham, though, eventually had Isaac, his son, through Sarah, and Isaac had grown, he sent that same slave, Eleazar, away back to his homeland to find a suitable wife for Isaac. And remember how devoted old Eleazar was to Abraham. How concerned Eleazar was with succeeding in finding a wife to take back to Isaac. Praying to the Lord that he would guide him to the right one. Setting up a a test to discern whether God had sent him the right one. Saying, Lord, if she offers me a drink and a drink to my camels offers to water my camels. I'll know she's the one. 
Think of that. Poor old Eleazar. As devoted as he was to his master Abraham, he knew that once Abraham died, there was no inheritance for himself. Paul is telling the slaves in Colossae something revolutionary who were Christians. That there was an inheritance waiting for them. Paul had mentioned this back in chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And who was this Lord whom they would receive an inheritance from? Paul emphasizes it with the next phrase. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The Kyrios Christos, the Master Messiah, the Anointed One of God whom you serve. He's the one who will hand you your inheritance. So the second motivation, verse 25 Motivation for obedience. It's unlike verse 24 because it's from the negative perspective. It's not a highlight of the blessings of inheritance for obedience and faithful service. Instead of blessing from the Lord Christ, if you do not serve faithfully, you will receive the consequences of the wrong. Incidentally, that word wrong is the same word for wrong that is used in the, the corresponding letter to Philemon related to Onesimus. If Onesimus has wronged you in any way, I will pay it back for you, Paul says. He uses the same word here. So, um, you will receive the consequences of the wrong. And that without partiality. It means no favoritism. God is not going to judge on the basis of appearances or social status. Just because you were a poor slave in this life doesn't mean God's going to go easy on you. And just because you were a wealthy master doesn't mean that God is going to go extra hard on you either. God is actually going to judge impartially without consideration for social standing. Both slave and master will be repaid at the judgment seat of Christ on the basis of what they have done. Romans 14.10 mentions this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus himself says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Christ will come again and he will judge impartially. And so we see the final instruction here in verse 25 as having a blended application. It applies to the slave on the one hand and the masters on the other hand. But now Paul turns his attention squarely to the earthly masters. And so he gives them instructions in verse 4.1. And they're very simple. He just says to this, grant to your slaves two things, justice and fairness. Justice means what is right what is virtuous, what is acceptable to God. Give that to your slave. Grant that to them. Treat them justly. Also treat them with fairness. Paul likely uses this in, a, in the sense that it could just be accompanying the word justice and sort of a synonym for the word justice. There, the word, though, also carries the connotation of equality. I ran across some commentators who argue that that's what Paul is saying by the word fairness here, that he's saying treat them with equality. 
I don't think that it matters necessarily if equality is what Paul means with this specific word in 4 verse 1, uh, because in chapter 3 uh, verse 11, that verse is in context here. And here's what that says. It says, there is no Greek or Jew. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. There's no slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In the very context, Paul taught the equality of the slave and the master. He's already affirmed the equality of the slaves and masters. Even if that nuanced meaning is not what he means right here, it's already in the context. And he affirms it again with the next phrase, which was meant to motivate this good treatment from the masters to their slaves. Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So this whole section... I better not say anything. I was about to say, uh, I won't say it. If I say it, then I will say what I'm, never mind. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. It made sense in my mind. It, maybe after the sermon, I'll, I'll share it with you. Anyway. So, that's why you don't deviate from your notes, right? Because you say weird things. Okay. So, this whole section, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1, has included this play on words that I mentioned to you that would have been noticeable to the earthly masters. Paul uses the word Lord for master throughout this instruction section as a consistent and as a persistent reminder to both the slave and the master of this point that he expresses. And this point is, there is ultimately only one master. He's not here now. He's in heaven But he's coming back. And he has seen all that you've done. He's seen you when you slacked off in the field. He's seen you when you were watching YouTube and you were supposed to be working. Or shopping for guitars when you're supposed to be studying. My apologies. Abe caught me doing that not that long ago. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, YouTube's the devil. Okay, anyway. So that wasn't in my notes. So um, there's only one master ultimately. And he's seen all that you've done, all that you've said. And you're going to eventually answer him face to face when he asks you to give an account of what you've done. The point we fix on, fixate on in, in this evil generation that we live in is the master-slave dynamic. And people attack the Bible and they grill Christians on why they have faith in a book that seems to condone slavery. Many people would hear a sermon like the one I've given today. They would hear that. They would, they would see a, a sermon like the point, like, like the one I'm giving today, and they would condemn it. They would, they would think that I'm advocating for slavery just because I'm honestly attempting to discuss the issue in the way that the Bible presents it and to defend it as good in what it teaches us here. Some accuse Christians like myself who believe that the Bible's instructions for our lives and the ordering of the civic life around us are still valuable as being in favor of reinstituting slavery. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody is arguing for that. Christians who honor the Bible and take its commands seriously 
ought to be the least of your worries if you believe that. None of us are seeking to accomplish the reinstitution of slavery. But there are others who are. And they're very real. And if any of them gain an upper hand in our land, we will see liberty evaporate very quickly. If socialists get the upper hand, socialist globalists get the upper hand, no one will enjoy the fruits of their labor to the degree that they do to get today. And no one except the elites in the states will be enriched. Poverty will come upon us like a bandit if they gain the upper hand. If radical Muslims get the upper hand in our society, they will govern, as they have already in many places throughout the world, they will govern with no qualms about subjugating those who refuse to bow the knee to Allah or to Muhammad. If the perverse and the purveyors of smut gain the upper hand, and they already have the upper hand in many ways in our society, you will see a ballooning effect on the occurrence and danger of kidnapping and human sex trafficking, prostitution and pornography. Sexual freedom is not liberty. Not at all. It's enslavement and it degrades and it ruins a culture. We fixate on the wrong thing if we think this passage is just about a master and his slaves. This passage is about the master, Jesus Christ. King Jesus, and he's coming back very soon to judge. And the truth of the matter is, we're all slaves to that master. Bob Dylan wrote the song. Someone just sent this to me. Was it you, Scott? Yeah, Yeah, I thought it was. Yeah. He wrote the song, You're Going to Have to Serve Somebody. And he says, you may be a state trooper, you may be a young Turk, you may be the head of some big TV network, you may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame, you may be living in another country under another name, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan is right. He's right, but he should have gone on to explain that even the devil will have to answer to the Lord, the true master. We've experienced in our society a high degree of liberty in our young country here in America. We're spoiled. We are ignorant of the true reality of the past. We can't comprehend how brutal the world and mankind has been in generations past because we have experienced such peace and prosperity. For some of us, that's all we've known. And we mock God when we fail or refuse to give Him thanks for the liberty that we enjoy in our society. And don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The same is true of a society. We've sown judgmental finger-pointing into our past, into our ancestors. We've sown all of that for their sins. And like a man with a log in his own eyes, we sow death in our own day. How will you handle it when you reap what you've sown? How will you handle it if this earthly freedom that you've always known is taken away in judgment? The risk is very real. The place to start if you want to understand this passage as it ought to be understood is where Bob Dylan took us. You aren't really free. You really aren't. You have to serve 
somebody. If you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, then you're a slave to sin and a slave to fear and a slave to death and Satan. And these are not kind masters. But there is a master who paid a very high price to purchase you from those cruel ones. But he won't make you leave the dark kingdom that you now inhabit unless you want to. But if you will hear his kind voice and let it melt your hard heart, you will know the only real freedom that exists in this entire world. Being a slave of the master, the Lord Jesus. And I ask you, will you come to him? Even now, will you come to him and be freed? The master who is coming has been so kind. We just sang of his kindness. Oh, but God, the price he paid to buy you back from slavery to sin and evil was his own life. That's the whole point of the cross. Jesus allowed himself to be brutalized and mistreated and undignified, worse than any slave in human history. And he did all that so that you could be free. And once He frees you, He's so good that He adopts you. You become His family. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. You're born again into His household. He's a kind master. And once you've come to this kind master, who's in heaven right now, but's coming back soon, your station in life won't matter nearly as much to you. You can be blessed as a slave or you can be blessed as a supervisor. You can be blessed as a burger flipper or you can be blessed as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It won't matter your station in life because all are one and all are equal in value in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, this gospel is really revolutionary when you consider it. This idea and reality in Scripture of the equality of all believers in Jesus sowed the seeds that bloomed in history into glorious freedom that the world had never seen before. Even though Paul didn't push for the abolition of slavery in his day, his words and the teaching of the gospel message eventually were instrumental in ending the practice of chattel slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. It was his followers, the followers of Jesus, who worked tirelessly out of compassion for their fellow man who were suffering under slavery. And we all enjoy the blessings of what they worked to provide. Yet in our day, we're chopping up and destroying the root of that tree of liberty. And it's this. Liberty is sustained by the Bible. The Bible is the root and the source of of our liberty in the West. And if the Bible is abandoned, liberty will wither and it will fall like the autumn leaves that are all around us right now. So I urge all of you who hear this message, come back to the Master. Give life-giving water to your thirsty soul. Give meat and nourishment to your malnourished mind. Repent of your unbelief and turn to Christ in faith, and put your whole being's trust in Him. Come back to the Master, 
before he comes back for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us, Father, never to blush at or be embarrassed by your word. Help us to know, God, and be confident that your word um, is that which justifies us. We have no need to justify your word. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that the message of the gospel is that we have a kind master who has purchased us and who invites us into sonship, into the household, to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, the master who is coming. Let us be ready for him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand, if you will, for the benediction. You know, the words that we as God's people all desire to hear on the day when Jesus arrives to judge are these. Well done, good and faithful slave. Did you realize that's the same word? He used the same word to describe us as Paul used in addressing the Colossian slaves. May your highest aim in your life be to love and serve your master with all your heart. Depart with the blessings and the peace that comes from the knowledge of your good master. Amen.